Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Enough Wick Air. Um, Sarah, we have a very special guest with us today. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We have Deborah Macy, who is an instructor for communication studies at the University of Portland. But more importantly, she has written a paper called Ancient Archetypes in Modern Media, a Comparative Analysis of Golden Girls, Living Single, and Sex and the City. So welcome, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. I'm very excited to talk about this work that I haven't talked about in quite some time. I'm excited there's a renewed interest in it, maybe from your perspective, but also from mine. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So as you know, you know, enough wicker, we're trying to bring forth the scholarly perspective of the Golden Girls. So what better way to dig up an old paper of yours <laughs> and get an actual scholar's perspective. So can you can you just start talking about, you know, the, the process of digging this up but as as you wrote it back in the day, quote unquote, and how it came together for to discuss the Golden Girls, but also these other two television shows? Yes, I can. So what's interesting is this, and I have all the little books that kind of made it come together. Uh, so in, and date myself, in 1998, something like that, I was in graduate school at St. Louis University in an undergraduate um, gender communication course. And in the gender communication course, uh, the textbook was written by Julia T. Wood, and she talked about stereotypes of women in the workplace. And she called them the Iron Maiden, the sex object, the mother, and the child. And so that is that first moment where I was like, oh, wow, we see these things everywhere. So it wasn't just, you know, in the workplace. And, you know, she was saying that in the work, women are treated as either the mother and they're supposed to be caretakers for everyone there, or they're treated as the child and dismissed, or they're the sex object, or there's even jobs that embody the sex object, like, like, um, flight attendant and hostess and things like that. So it was really interesting. Like I said, this is where it started. And then it wasn't until a decade later where I was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna use those archetypes. But, but again, I kept seeing them everywhere. And then I started to, that just became my lens. And so I would even look at things like Friends who only has three characters. And I'd say, ah, oh, Monica's kind of the Iron Maiden. And of course, Phoebe's the ditz and, you know, and are the child and go through like that. But it started with Julia T. Wood's um, Gendered Lives in a gender communication class, stereotypes of women in the workplace. And then what I think I had originally wanted to do for my dissertation was look at sex in the city. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to look at sex in the city. I was going to talk about, not really about the archetypes, but about the more the narrative and the resolution and how the resolution pointed to I, I don't know, I don't know what it was going to point to, but pointed to <laughs> probably just neutrality, right? Because that's the, in the way the least feminist thing about Sex in the City is that it always ends with Carrie kind of smoothing everything out. It's like, well, yeah. Yeah, interesting, neutrality. And, and, and then I just thought that would be so boring. <laughs> that would be so boring. And so then I just, you know, I was just thinking about the, probably just watching television and thinking about the archetypal characters and then seeing them. And then maybe it was, you know, maybe it was the robbery episode or some episode that was just like, I need to look at these and compare them and, and then see what they say. So that, and, and also I think it was in one of my last classes at, as a graduate student, we read The Implied Spider um, by Wendy Doninger and something about this book, and I can't find it even with all my little notes, um, led me to that comparative um, mythological analysis. And I was like, that's what I need to do. I need to look at the different, pro the different series that have these archetypes and compare them. And then where's that, I always call it that slippage. That's the exciting part. And so that's the long version of how this came about. Like it's, it's a decade in the making, but that's, that's what happened. These archetypes were roaming around in my head. Different things that I was reading made those connections for me. And I was like, this is it. Wow, that is so interesting. I feel like I, you said that was a long answer, but honestly, I could have you go on for much longer <laughs> about that. Um, that's actually also a great transition into um, our next question, which is like, I think, you know, anybody who has watched the show enough and just heard you describe the four different types could tell us which one is which. Obviously, Dorothy is the Iron Maiden, strong feminist leader. Sophia is the mother, storyteller, provider. 
Um, Rose is, I think, very obviously the child, naive, innocent. Um, and Blanche, again, very, very obviously, I think, is the sex object. So um, can you talk a little bit more about how each of these archetypes interplay with the characters and, um, you know, individually and also as a group? There's a lot of slippage in the archetypes because some people would argue that Dorothy's the mother, she's the connecting character. You could argue that Blanche is the mother because she provides a home for them, right? So, so sometimes there's some slippage with Sophia and Dorothy becoming mother and Iron Maiden. And I argue that Sophia's Iron Maiden is because she's not beholden to those, because she's old, she's not beholden to those um, feminine requirements, right? Those feminine norms so strongly because she's aged right. out of them. She doesn't have to be the most beautiful woman in the world. She doesn't have to act perfect. She doesn't have to act nice. She can do whatever she wants because she's 80 and it doesn't matter. Right? <laughs> and so that's what I would, sometimes she would become the Iron Maiden. So people would push back on my, my designation of archetype. And so one of the things that I did in the beginning was develop these definitions, right? That's how I operationalized the archetype. So I developed these definitions based on Bolin and Downing and then said, I counted the times in the episode. Again, and I'm not a quantitative researcher and so this was really hard for me, <laughs> uh, but I had to triangulate methods. So I had to, I had to uh, use something quantitative. So I'd count the times that Dorothy looked like the Iron Maiden, either looked so in dress, looked so in speech, whatever. Every time she did anything that was kind of Iron Maiden related, she got a little check. And the same is true of, of all the characters. Whatever uh, archetype they were acting in or dressing like in, in any given moment in the series, they would get marked. And then I used my unit of analysis as predominant archetype per episode. And if, if that's your unit of analysis and it's a lot easier to see that Dorothy is the Iron Maiden, right. that Sophia is the, the mother, Rose is the child, and Blanche is kind of extraordinarily the, the sex <laughs> Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Well, it's interesting too, what you say about, when you were talking about Sophia and sort of aging out, like she could be an Iron Maiden, but she's aged out to become the mother. Right. I think that the show specifically is kind of arguing that whole, like, you don't all have to become the mother, that like older women can actually have these dynamic personalities. So oh, really interesting. Like that. that Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting that you mentioned the episode with Laszlo, the artist, Laszlo. because yeah, you guys know that's, <laughs> <laughs> this is our job to know this. I know. So, but it's, it's fascinating because of that, that whole idea of there's more to you than just this archetype. There's more to yes. you than just this single label. And um, that's the beauty of womanhood. Right. 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 This exactly. full kind of complete human being. Yeah, exactly. And then your friends bring out the best in you, right? All the different sides. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of like combining, you know, everything, you mentioned recombinant thinking, right? So there's a, there's a quote in there where you were talking about Susan Sontag and you quoted another scholar and you're saying like, obviously when you, you know, people are criticizing like, oh, all the same shows, we've been telling the same Greek myths over and over. And what does that say about women? But that it doesn't necessarily have to be negative, right? It can actually teach us different things about ourselves and show us different sides if you sort of sort of recombine these different archetypes. So can you talk about that a little bit, that, that passage sort of sneaks into your paper? Yeah, well, I, lo I love the idea of recombinant television, right? That we, we are creating the same show over and over. And, and I like the idea, like, can you imagine the, um, the pitch to living single. It's like Golden Girls, except it's young black um, Brooklyn women and Queen Latifah is going to be, you know, the star. She's the Dorothy and she's the <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I mean, you can hear the pitch. Yes. And so we, you know, we use these things to help us. But the, I think the other side of that is, yeah, no, it doesn't have to be negative. It's, it's something that we can connect with real easily, right? That's, and that's why we use it, right? That's why it's being used because mm -hmm. they need you to connect with their characters right away. Otherwise they're going, <laughs> they're going to get canceled right away. So they need that happening. But I think the other thing that happens is we don't just create the exact same show that we update it based on cultural norms and, and you get to see 
those shifts and those cultural norms. And they might not shift that much, but you, you get to see them a little bit. And so that's what I think is the interesting part of it. In some ways, yeah, it's still regressive. We're still, you know, the mother, the child, the sex object, you know. But in other ways, it, it's, you see how far we've come too. What what they could talk about on Golden Girls um, isn't the same as what you could talk about on Sex in the City or even li Living Single or yeah. Right. So you see these updates in in the culture for good or for bad. You see some updates, mm -hmm. but I do think Golden Girls was the most feminist of the three shows that I looked at by far. Now let's talk about that. Um, I think one you know one of the first times that Lauren and I met each other and talked about the Golden Girls that came out right away. But that was why we really latched onto the show and not even just as you know older women now where we can actually have a definition of feminism and really talk about it and how it's affected our lives but even just reflecting these kinds of women when we were young women and very impressionable or just girls really yeah. and to we didn't even know what feminism was or why we needed it but we were sort of being instructed by these sort of four uh you know recombinant uh, women on television. So. Right, they're not the first, you know, right. obviously, right? They right. Go back so can to... you, can you talk about like, you know, so you, you did Golden Girls, you did Living Single, you did Sex in the City. Can you talk about sort of that overarching feminist tone, where it came from and why Golden Girls sort of stood out to you? It's Dorothy. <laughs> I mean, and that's the argument of my dissertation, right? It's that these archetypal characters have a narrative function. And Dorothy's function is to bring out that feminist ideology. At worst, the Iron Maiden character can be a cautionary tale of what feminist, you know, might befall on you, <laughs> your feminist, you know. But at best. You mean Stanley's Warnack? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but at best, um, you know, she's a real feminist icon. And as much as she is ridiculed, and she's, she's called Fez Parker, <laughs> you know, like, she's called all these different masculine people's names. And, you know, she's, she's always told in a way she's ugly. And she's, you know, she gets ridiculed. But she still is, in some ways, the most respected character. Like they, they respect her. And so when she talks, people listen. Mm -hmm. And so whenever she carries a dialogue or, you know, our narrative about fixing the, the toilet or, <laughs> or sexual harassment or, you know, whatever it is, that, that dialogue has import, that it becomes really important. So I want you all to speak about a couple episodes uh, that you like with Dorothy and kind of, but the ways in which she carries that feminist agenda. And the two, I, oh, the, my favorite is Dr. Bud. Oh, oh yeah. Dr. Chronic Bud. Fatigue Syndrome. That's a good one. So like chronic fatigue syndrome, not only does she bring light to that, but she brings light to the ways in which women are just disregarded in healthcare. Like, oh, sweetheart, you don't, that's all in your head. You don't know what you're talking about is discount women. And again, it's, it stems back to, oh, we're hysterical and, and all this other stuff. So when she did that episode, I just thought that was brilliant. Yeah. That long monologue she has with Dr. Bud. Oh, I just love it. It's, it's incredible. It's, yeah, it is. There's, there's so many parts in, you know, in, in the show where I, it's funny because your paper and, and what you just said made me think about Dorothy as the audience vehicle for a lot of those progressive ideas that the Golden Girls was trying to put forth, right? Like, I mean, you, you mentioned a few before, like women can fix their own toilet, Lou, all right? <laughs> um, you know, but also they can stand up for themselves in that medical setting, they, they know their body, they can tell off their ex-husband and talk about how they're actually much more independent without him. And, you know, they can, um, the one that came to mind too was even her as a vehicle to talk about gun control in a way like you were talking about the break-in right there's yes it doesn't exactly touch on gun control but Dorothy goes I cannot live in a house with a gun you know and she's like <laughs> actually the first one that's like super adamant about just like this is ridiculous yes and, I mean there's so many more examples I don't I don't know what comes to mind for you Lauren yeah I was actually thinking of I mean definitely the chronic fatigue syndrome that whole saga is 
you know, just incredible to have it on TV. And what was interesting is um, my, my partner has seen the Golden Girls like here and there, but she's not like seasoned. Um, and recently, <laughs> <laughs> recently that one was on and she was like, this is crazy that they were talking about this in the early 90s. And like, we're still reading articles about like the rate at which women, particularly black women die during childbirth, you know, in this country. And so like, how wild is it that, you know, it's been 30 years and we still don't believe women when they tell us what is wrong with their own person. Um, but on like sort of a lighter, but also very important note, I think there's a couple episodes of Dorothy walking away from a relationship that either isn't like fulfilling her in every way or um, like when she's dating or when she's interested in George Clooney's cop partner, she's just yeah. like, I can't do this. It's too risky. Or like with Glenn O'Brien and then um, with Dick Van Dyke, um, man. Yeah, the clown. You're, I, I was like, <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Um, I certainly think that must have had some kind of impact on um, on me and, and people like me who are watching the show and were like, yeah, that's stupid. Why would you ever, like, you don't, finding, I guess, like, validation in yourself rather than a romantic relationship, I think is a huge theme of this show. And I think it's really Dorothy's, like, you know, charge. Absolutely. I agree. Dorothy's charge. I agree, exactly. I think even more so than not having to have a partner it is about the connection among the women mm -hmm. which i think is really special uh, and and i would argue that the most feminist thing about sex in the city is the friendship among the women and mm -hmm. so i i do think you know that the, there's a real power in female friendships and i think i i i see that as more prominent than Dorothy's independence, but I certainly see Dorothy's independence in there. Mm -hmm. And let me ask you all a question because I know you'll answer it. Is the married, is, is the Clooney's partner the same guy as the married man? You mean the actor? Yeah. Yeah, a very, very similar look. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so she has a type. <laughs> exactly. So the married man actually was played by two different, <laughs> so, two different actors. It was played by Alex Rocco first and then by Jerry Orbach, um, which yeah, we, we believe Jerry Orbach is the superior Glenn O'Brien. Yeah, I uh, think so too. I think so too. I, I would say of the two of them, or I'm sorry, of the three of them, I actually really like the actor who plays the cop. <laughs> I think he's the best one. So wish he stuck around. But, but uh, none of them is the same. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Not at all. Not at all. Which actually is something that is a really valid question because there have been many, many, many people who have played the same uh, or played different people with as the same actor, like the same character, you know, development inside the show. So, for example, I just found out, I just rewatched Weekend at Bernie's and I didn't realize that Bernie, Dead Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's, plays both a kind of robber, bank robber Santa Claus in an episode, as well as a Beatlemania <laughs> figure. Yes, Beatlemania, oh my God, that's so, so it's just great. It's like, it's, you know, it's the 80s and all these people are like, we liked that guest star, bring them on for a different character. You know, it's, yeah. it's wonderful. Well, and I love, well, I love the episode where Blanche is having the dreams. Oh yeah. Sonny Bono. Sonny Bono, yes, yeah, yeah. Sonny Bono and, and the other guy from the Carol Burnett show. And I yeah, know you exactly, exactly. Maya Wagoner. <laughs> How many gold records do you have? None. I was never married. <laughs> God, you so guys so good. So, so the best part of this is like you you even you only did the first season, right? For each of these three shows? Or only no? did the only first the season. I only, yeah, I only did, I only looked at the first season for the, because I was just really trying to get through the quantitative <laughs> part. So I only looked at season one and then like every, you know, fourth episode or something like that right. for the content analysis. So that, because that had to be more systematic. Right. Because, you know, quantitative scholars want things to be orderly. No, <laughs> I wanted to dig into the messiness. So no, I looked at the whole series of all of them, the entire series. Mm -hmm. uh, when I did the narrative analysis. But I wanted to then, when you mentioned different people playing different characters or different people playing the same character, Miles. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Worst. The worst <laughs> offender. <laughs> <laughs> right? The worst offender. Thank you. Um, which then start, started me thinking about the idea of sexuality 
and the child sexuality in mm. the show and how that is used. And one of the themes that I did find is that, um, <clears throat> you know, the child is to maintain this kind of virginal affect, you know, like, but if they're with the right person, then, you know, sex is okay. And then it's like, what's the right way to phrase this? Sex becomes, like, they become better at sex than any kind of sex object, right? Like, they, they're just so good at sex when they're in this sanctioned relationship, right? And you saw that with Rose and her husband when she talks about, like, how they had sex every day for the, the entirety of their marriage. <laughs> Rose is like, exactly what oh, dear God, like... <laughs> No wonder you still mourn that man. Yeah, exactly. 56 boyfriends. <laughs> it's Rose the Prude. That's one of the first episodes, right? It's Rose so the Prude. Funny. And she's trying to decide, am I supposed to, should I have sex with, it's Arnie, but it, is it Arnie, but it's Miles it's or I can't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Arnie at first. It's funny you mentioned that episode because I was thinking if, if you listen to the Enough Wicker podcast on that episode, Lauren brings up a really good point that it's actually sort of like a virginal experience story again, because she's, you know, she hasn't slept with a man since her husband. And of course we don't know the whole backstory of just right. how much they had sex all the time, but she's so <laughs> nervous and she runs into the bathroom and she doesn't even know to go on the trip and like all of this stuff. And it's, it's actually a, like a virginal experience, like losing your virginity story again. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to our culture because, you know, we constantly tell young women and girls, right? Like, oh, you know, sex is bad, it's bad, it's bad, save it for someone you love, right? Like, it's the worst messaging ever. It's like <laughs> the terrible messaging about sexuality and sexual, you know, your body. And I just, it's terrible. I, I never even thought of it like that until you just put it that way. Yes. <laughs> You're just like, it's the absolute worst thing until it's... <laughs> and then, you know, the, and the reality is then where, where and when do you get that experience to to be that because decades of training to be virginal mm -hmm. doesn't put you in a space where you're comfortable with sex. And yet what they, what television is telling us is that it, it does. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Jeez. Rose didn't even know what a man looked like until, you know, her dad showed her the bull. Um. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. Um, did you, so in the, so let's let's go a little little deeper into each of these, you know, um, different archetypes. So we talked about you know Rose as the child and her sort of sexual being, but let's move towards the sex object. Let's talk about yeah, Blanche a little bit, and because <laughs> she, I don't know, Lauren, you mentioned before, like if somebody is like even just a, a casual viewer of the show and you sort of gave them a quiz and said like match these archetypes to the Golden Girls, people could probably tell. But I I would argue that they would say Blanche first, like they would people would know it almost more immediately than any of the other three ladies that she is the sex object. I would agree, absolutely, without a doubt, yeah. Right. <laughs> so can you talk about the experience of just, I mean, uh, the sex object in terms of the archetype sort of speaks for itself, but like the experience of watching Blanche in the episodes that you, you know, looked at narratively? Well, it's, I mean, it's so interesting because it's not just about her, she's so in love with herself, right? right? Like, she's just so beautiful no one's more beautiful than she is and yeah it's all of those things and i i like that i appreciate that um the pro well <laughs> the best thing about blanche's sexuality is that she demonstrates that older women are sexual beings right and because again so often we're told that beauty and sex are for the young mm -hmm. and so the fact that she's really quite in love with her own, her own body, her own appearance, her own self and being, um, I think is really progressive, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's like, okay, we can, we can love ourselves. We don't have to go, oh, I'm this or I'm that, or, you know, like we right. can. The problem I think with Blanche as the sex object and not so much with Blanche as the sex object, but Golden Girls in the time that it was on television mm -hmm. is that the series is a traditional sitcom and it is problem solution. Mm -hmm. And the problem typically is a fight among the women, right. which I think is its least, Golden Girls' least feminist aspect. Mm -hmm. and so there's a, typically a fight among the women and then it's resolved at the end. And Blanche is really good at pitting 
you know, her beauty against the others, right? right. Um, so in one, in one way, it's like, oh, it's just this great, ah, oh, she can own herself and her sexuality. And then this other, it's like, oh, She's taking it against other yeah. women. Yeah. But I don't blame the characters. I blame 1980s sitcoms, mm -hmm. right? That's just what they did. I think we were going to say the male writers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Them too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also interesting because I was thinking of the two two instances in particular in which Blanche, Blanche's sexuality is sort of like used against her. And one of them is when um, Elliot, Dorothy's boyfriend, like hits on her and she tells Dorothy and Dorothy doesn't believe her. And the other is when during the Gil Kessler thing where yeah, he's like running, mm -hmm. you know, and they there's this like very like sordid rumor that she was in his hotel room or whatever and she wasn't and nobody believes her because of the sort of like sexuality um that she projects yeah it's like and and it's almost uh i mean that's those are definitely the perfect definitions of like the girls the other girls her getting pitted against them too but i was even thinking of like the entire framing of the sexual harassment episode is like does a woman like this, does the sex object deserve to be not harassed like this? Yeah, and that's, I think that's what's so powerful about that episode, right? Because yeah. it's not Dorothy. It's not Dorothy who's doing that. It's Blanche. And 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 you would think, oh, Blanche, who cares? She'll sleep with him. She wants right. an egg, she'll sleep with him. We, why would she have any problem with that, right? Right, right. Exactly. Uh, but no, it's, it's not and it's wrong and it's wrong and Blanche says so Dorothy names it mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. so that's true takes it to that next level and then he Dorothy plays that role of Iron Maiden where she's like this is sexual harassment yeah right, right. it's interesting I wonder if there are there any of those those episodes that Lauren mentioned I feel like Blanche has a similar Iron Maiden type speech to sort of defend herself. So that's where it's, that's where the slippage piece is interesting, right? Where like the girls play multiple roles because when we were going back before talking about the chronic fatigue episode, you know, where the the doctors, the, uh, the outside doesn't believe Dorothy because she's a woman, but the inside circle, Dorothy and the other girls don't believe that Blanche didn't sleep with this politician. They don't believe, you know, that, that Blanche wasn't, you know, uh, hitting on uh, Dorothy's boyfriend. So, I mean, and then Blanche actually has to give those speeches or, or at least at the end have some sort of resolution where she's the one that stands up and says, you guys are bullshit. <laughs> you gotta believe me, I'm your best friend. Yeah. Yeah, that, I, I missed that, but you are absolutely correct. <laughs> you are absolutely correct. So, I, and I think it's because I just see Blanche as such the sex object. Yeah. And it's really hard for me to see her in any role, but you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. uh, she would, it would make for very flat television if we, if the archetypes yeah. were just solid, right, and didn't move back and forth. So, so now yeah, let's. No, again, there and then again, Rose. Then when Rose becomes the Iron Maiden, right, in the um, Gorbachev episode, mm -hmm. in the you know, and in and I, so I did catch that one, right? I did catch the, and it's really what I connected it to is how the children sometimes can see the absurdity of our culture and they call it out like well why would that be and you know and, and rose playing that role and so yes. i was able to see those i'm really now curious as to why i didn't see blanche as as an iron maiden in those episodes mm -hmm. yeah but you're I right i feel like dorothy sets such an example that all all the other three like they have the, those moments you know where they have to lead um, yeah, and I think in the Elliot episode in particular, Sophia might be filling that role because I think she um, believes Blanche sort of from the beginning and is kind of like trying to stay out of it, but also like very much trying to guide the, you know, like guide the conflict a little bit. Um, and it's, you know, Dorothy, who obviously like is the traditional Iron Maiden, is very much wrapped up in this guy. And so like all of her sort of yeah. typical feminist stuff is kind of out the window because she's like right. heels for this loser <laughs> i just excluded those from my data yeah. <laughs> hey, listen we're we're not quantitative ladies over here so they didn't work for me i excluded those. 
So you just talked about Sophia, Lauren. So let's let's talk about the mother archetype. And and you know, I think you talk in the paper too that like, you know, Sophia, and you mentioned earlier too that Sophia has a lot of these Iron Maiden qualities, but because of her older age yes. and how she's sort of separated, and particularly because of her storytelling nature, she really hits on the mother. Mother. And and then the first thing, you know, that's ever spoken when she walks in the room is mom. Yeah. <laughs> so from that moment, I just, I, I just make the argument, too, that, you know, she is framed as the mother from the very first, first word that's spoken when she enters. Right. From there. Um, but, yeah, it's the storytelling. And, that, again, another really interesting thing across the three series is that they're all, the mothers are all storytellers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, like, the guiding. Mm-hmm. So how do you... How does the storytelling element of like television and pushing sort of progressive ideals like work with the Iron Maiden who's like the spokesperson of it? It's just two different ways to communicate. Because I feel like, you know, it's it's interesting where Sophia, Sophia's stories are like sort of lessons sometimes, but a lot of the time they're sort of senile. Well, and that's one of the arguments I make too, is that she becomes less of the archetype and falls into the ethnic stereotype. Like she's the, she's the Italian mother. She's the Jewish mother. She's right. the ethnic stereotype mother. And that's probably something that I probably can't even articulate anymore, but it was about kind of the idea of archetypes are these empty vessels that we can fill and stereotypes concretize these ideas. And so in some ways, when she becomes that ethnic stereotype, it doesn't do much. Uh, but when she kind of can move beyond that, she's, she's more powerful. But yeah, all the ladies are powerful in, in their own way, Yeah, which is really interesting. It's, and then, you know, and again, it's so hard because it's 1980s sitcom television, <laughs> like broadcast sitcom television. And what they do, and I just, the relationships, although, in the end, all is resolved and the friendships are restored, but there's so much discord in the middle, mm-hmm. which we, yeah, we I think always only, joke recently, about... only recently in, in narratives have we moved away from that, seriously. Mm-hmm. We, we, we always joke about, um, <laughs> Lauren and I are always talking about the, the threats to move out, you know, so yeah. there's like one little fight and it's like, oh, I gotta move out, you know. <laughs> It's all wrapped up. Getting married every, every episode, episode, someone's engaged. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> someone's getting married, someone's engaged every other episode. I, and then I like when they're really off character. I like when Rose is competitive. Oh, love. So love good. when Rose is competitive. The dance one, the <laughs> one, like she's crazy competitive. Like I just think it's great. And the best. Is that archetypal? I mean, I mean, is that um, Iron Maiden to be that competitive? I don't know. Maybe it is a child to be that competitive. Maybe. Oh, man, that I love fits in there. Competitive. That does fit. That's really interesting. Um, can we go back a little bit? Uh, you said something interesting about um, like ethnic stereotypes versus archetypes, and I, I wanted to ask particularly about the um, like the sex object character because I think when black women are portrayed as interested in sexuality that's often, you know, like it's often either demonized or like fetishized or something that, that I think white women aren't always subjected to. So I would love to just hear you say a little bit about that. All right. I'm going to talk about living single. Please. Uh, I do talk about that in the dissertation. So living single, again, they're a little different. Um, I put Regine as the sex object only because she's totally and completely in love with herself, but she is the least sexed character on the show. Max is really more of the sex object, mm. but I put her as the Iron Maiden. And then, and again, because she's, she's always like spouting off um, feminist slogans, <laughs> right? And, and she's the lawyer. And she's the most masculine, and she's the most independent. Therefore, she got designated as the um, uh, the Iron Maiden. And then Queen Latifah, who's really the Iron Maiden, is the um, is the mother. And then I one argued that that speaks about um, black motherhood and the strong black woman in in black communities and how important that is. And that's the Queen Latifah role. But then the um, 
So the sex object then becomes regime only because she's in love with herself. But the, the Iron Maiden who is Max is hypersexualized. And I think it really does speak to the hypersexualization of the black body, you know, dating all the way back to, to slavery and how that black body has been um, marginalized in that way. So I don't know if that answers your question. I think it kind of gets at that. Yeah, totally. That, that, that's, I am so glad that, um, that that came up organically because I was very curious to know, you know, mm -hmm. what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, just using, you know, using Living Single, it was certainly in there. Um, and like I said, the least sex character in Living Single I made as the sex object, but she is blanched through and through. <laughs> you should see, like, she's so in love with herself. She thinks she's better than everyone else. She has more money and more, you know, like, or she thinks she does. Uh, so it's really, it's really interesting to see how blanche-like she is. Uh, and then you do see this hypersexualization of the Iron Maiden, right? Which is really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Uh, because she's supposed to be the strong, powerful one, but it's really Queen Latifah that carries the feminist um, narrative within that series. Mm -hmm. And again, I just say that's that's about strong black motherhood, strong black womanhood in in black culture. Mm -hmm. And cite bell hooks, because who else would you cite? Well, exactly. Of <laughs> well, that's I was just thinking. There's there's something there about you know. Um, just the way that society frames black women and almost trying to undercut the strength of a feminist Iron Maiden with a hypersexualization yeah, overlay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's really fascinating. We, I, I, we think about that a lot with the Golden Girls of just like, you know, we are, it, it's progressive in so many ways, but we are also talking about four white heterosexual women who yeah. like are pretty straight and narrow, you know, for the most part, maybe yeah. say 56 boyfriends in one year <laughs> and, you know, Blanche <laughs> wants to sleep with two twins at the same time. But, uh, you know, that's about as deviant as it gets. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just really interesting that you've, you know, compared these other shows. And like you said, not, not only other types of communities, but uh, progressing down the line of just time. Yeah. How much you're allowed to sort of say and do and and the other, the other thing that comes into play is network. Yeah. Right. Cause you're talking NBC in the eighties, you're talking Fox right. in the nineties where Fox is wow, yeah. narrow cast to black and urban audiences, young black urban audiences, like they're narrow casting. They're trying to do something very specific there. And then HBO. Mm -hmm. And so network plays a role in what they can do as well. Yeah. So yes. I do blame a lot on just, it's 80 sitcom. Like, what can you do? Like, right. you can't do much more than that. We're, it's like super cool that we get to see old women on there. Yeah. But let's talk about that. Cause I think that's an important thing. Yeah. When I think about the women of Golden Girls, I think about them as grandmotherly, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm sure when I watched it, I thought of my grandmother and right. thought about how my grandmother, my grandmother would have been the, you know, ethnic stereotype, you know, the Italian, you know, <laughs> but I think that's probably what I thought most of, but I just was watching a show the other night and she's like, you know, my daughter, she's 55. So it's Sophia saying that Dorothy's 55. Like I am like running up close on 55. <laughs> <laughs> it is not that far away. And so I'm just like, just think about the way those women looked versus a show like Hot in Cleveland. Yes. which is the same show too, right? It's the same show. And you have, and they were in their 50s and 60s. They mm -hmm. were in their 50s and 60s in that show. Mm -hmm. And they had to look like they were 25. Yep. <laughs> it's amazing. That's, yeah. I mean, talk about timeline. Yeah, and it was mind-blowing to have these women at that age on television. <laughs> and Valerie Bernelli still has an age, by the way. She looks like I know. <laughs> well, yeah, and she, you know... Um, so I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And so Valerie Bertinelli, you know, she's like one day at a time, like she's iconic. <laughs> to me. Right, she doesn't age. But it's, to me, it's, it troubles me because it's that we can't age. It's not mm -hmm. that we don't age, it's that we're not allowed to. Right. Yeah, it was um, so interesting because I think uh, J-Lo did the Super Bowl, right? That was this year. I'm, I don't know. It was very recent that Jennifer Lopez did the Super Bowl. And obviously Jennifer Lopez looks like Jennifer Lopez and she's 50. Mm -hmm. And that was like the whole, like, you know, there was like a big, I, on Twitter, I think people were showing pictures of the Golden Girls being like, they were 55. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I kind of like that we're allowed to be young, 
you know, mm -hmm. that we're allowed to be young as we age, we're allowed to be beautiful and playful and um, young, but at the same time, it's like, oh my God, I can't be young anymore. <laughs> like, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> and then, you know, and well, and then I think about just the amount of face injections and things, you know, mm. at, at some point it's just like, it doesn't work anymore. Like it works and looks really great for the first, you know, few times. And then after that, you're just like, I want to grow old gracefully. Like show me someone who's growing old gracefully. And I think that's what the golden girls did. But of course it was just natural. I'd like to see that now. And I, uh, Sarah, I did mention this to you, but the, the show Ted Lasso mm. as, um, an older woman in, I love this show. Oh my God, I love this show. But has an older woman in it. And she's, I think, four years younger than I am in real life. Of course, I thought she was like at least four years older than I am. And I'm like, yeah, you don't look the way you think you look. Like, get over it. You don't look that way. And, but she's beautiful. She's absolutely gorgeous, but she has wrinkles and she's, I don't know, she's statuesque. She's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. She's growing old. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think that's so much more beautiful than just trying to look so much, so young. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I just, I don't know where we're going to see that narrative or if we're going to see it. Like we're not allowed, we're not allowed to grow old. Well, no, and her butt will turn like mush, but you'll always have your degree. <laughs> exactly. Like I like my wrinkles. I like my animated face. I don't want to, you know, like. Right. Exactly. Oh. I think they talk about that a little bit in the Golden Girls, um, but definitely like, you know, I've certainly seen other in other media, like men, the aging process obviously is also so different because men become like distinguished, you know, yeah. when women get old and like, that's yeah. the sort of like the crux of the issue is like we, women can still be beautiful when they get older, as long as they try to look younger. And not just like Jane Fonda, who also is like J-Lo, but just literally half a century later. <laughs> Wait, Jane Fonda shirt! This is oh, crazy! That's right, yeah. She but is. of course, Jane Fonda, you know, she, she could be the sex object and the Iron Maiden, you know, all wrapped up in one uh, together. She could be. Yeah, she's kind of spectacular. <laughs> she, she really is. That's why yeah. Lauren's wearing her shirt, right? Yeah. Hi, Jane. Hope you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's kind of great. Um, um, can I ask about, uh, so we're talking about the recombinant nature of, of character traits, but what about the recombinant nature of, of just narratives and storylines? So you mentioned in the paper when you did the hilarious quantitative scoring, um, <laughs> for the first three seasons of all of these shows, there's actually like a ton of the same style of, of storyline. Like there's a prostitution episode, there is a robbery episode, like all these different things. So did, did it get you thinking of like, how often are we actually even originally, like seeing an original storyline in terms of the pieces, the big pieces they put together? Yeah, I'm assuming we're not. <laughs> we're not seeing <laughs> any new storylines ever. I mean, again, they're updated, right? They're updated for the demographic that they're targeting. Mm. but. I think the most, what do I want to say, striking similarity was the robbery episode. Mm -hmm. In the fact that Blanche and Regine, the sex object of the, of Living Single and Golden Girls, like both had jewels, both kept their jewels in the freezer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, just like so many tiny little, like tiny details. Yeah. Um, the difference was, Blanche's jewels were real and a family heirloom and Regine's were fake, right? Mm -hmm. Speaking to class. Um, but the episodes are so similar in all these little tiny de details. And really to me, what it spoke to was female vulnerability mm -hmm. and that we're vulnerable mm -hmm. uh, out on the streets. Like we're vulnerable. Um, and I, I was, I think I was just reading that part too, before I got on the line with you and, it was, you know, and it was like several other scholars who were saying, yeah, there was this, you know, kind of white slave narrative. There's this shadowy figure narrative. There's all these mm -hmm. narratives. And one person, probably from psychology said, if like women, 
aren't dreaming about, they'll be dreaming about this, you know, before they're 25. Like this is really a prominent kind of theme mm. in our lives, this idea of vulnerability. And to see that on the screen was really interesting. Like I said, then to see the almost gross similarities, like the jokes, like it's the same joke. Even. Yeah. And right. I'm like, oh my God, it's not even funny. Like, who cares? <laughs> you know, like, it's not, you know, like, oh my God. But then the, the endings were completely different. And so you said just a minute ago, you know, like we're talking about white heterosexual women, you know, who are, who are really very privileged. Mm -hmm. And so the episode resolves with the police solving the crime. I know. Solving the crime and returning all their things. Yeah. When living single, um, the, it, it ends, it doesn't resolve. It ends very open-ended and there's sirens in the background mm. and it's them all gathering on the couch. Really, I'd say in fear, but yeah. also in, um, in solidarity, like we're going to get that, that um, watch group together and we're going to do this. And then it's, you know, what's her name? Max um, saying, Hey, can I come over? Right. And they're all, but they're all <laughs> together, but it's really like, there's no, there's no police um, bringing their stuff back right? Mm -hmm. There's no sense of security like you got in Golden Girls. Mm -hmm. There's just a sense of there's sirens in the back and, and nothing's changing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the resolution of those episodes were also very telling, speaking to, to race and class and right. location and yeah, all of these things. Yeah, like the same framework, but obviously, like you said, of just like when you're telling a story, you change it for your audience specifically. And obviously, that is a huge discrepancy between the way that both sets of these women are treated in our society. Yeah. And then the, the robbery episode for Sex in the City was, you know, she gets, <laughs> she gets, you know, harassed on the street and she has to give up her Manola Blahniks. I mean, you know, it's so kind of so superficial, right? It's, it speaks so much to what Sex in the City is. <laughs> Does it even, is that like the only episode that passes the Bechdel test? I mean, I feel like <laughs> yeah. it would be interesting to think about like which Golden Girls episodes really just like have no mention of like boyfriends or flings or love or romance or anything like that. That would actually be I really want to look at that right now. Yeah. I do. Well, after, you, you know, got, right well, after this podcast episode. You are better at knowing all the episodes and you're going through all of the episodes. Like I haven't looked at these. I mean, I'll occasionally hear an episode at night, right? Like <laughs> as I'm falling asleep, right. but I don't know them as well as I used to. You know, I'm not immersed in it anymore. And so I am curious, like, can you think of any episodes that aren't about men? I mean, there's, I, I think, well, there's definitely episodes that aren't about men, but I'm thinking like an episode that literally, even if it's not about men, like for example, the episode where Sophia has a bubble and she thinks she's having a heart attack. Like yeah. there, I, there's probably a mention of a man, like she's talking about Salvador, like her husband, right? So I'm thinking of like, is there even an episode where like, there's not even a significant other or some sort of sexual male partner mentioned at all? And I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, what, about what about chronic fatigue? Two no, I mean, chronic fatigue, I think, well, yeah, you know, it's the other story arc, But um, that's- Vance is writing a novel. <laughs> so maybe that would be one that's close. Not. Yeah. Um, I was thinking actually Henny Penny is the other one that like Blanche did have a thing with the director Bri yeah, like in count. the past so yeah. like but even I'm trying to I feel like anyone with health issues would really yeah. be the only one which seems like a little bit of a cop out <laughs> right what, like Rose when Rose has the heart attack mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but she's even life. talking about her dead husband too right so there's a lot of like I just, yeah, and even like you said, Lauren, in that episode, like even the one mention where Blanche had slept with the director, whoop, it's out for me. You know, like in terms of like, if we were going to do this as a, an analysis, it's really well, I'm going to look for it though now, obviously when yeah. I go through. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> I'm, I'm very curious. And I'm okay if there's a mention of men. Mm -hmm. I want the, like the driving force of the narrative to not be about men. So it's right. not about getting married or, you know. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think then def definitely then the Henny Penny fits into it. Um, you know, the the uh, the the bubble episode as we're talking about the heart Angela, attack episode. I think. So when the sister Angela, yeah, the sisters. Sister in town. Yeah. 
There's what actually, about, there's a lot of them that, you know, that not even the B story is focused on it, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, the driving narrative is, is often not about it, despite the fact that Blanche is engaged three times in the first season, you know, uh, <laughs> so, oh man, what else, um, what else can you think of that really, like, struck you, either rereading your paper, as you partially did, or thinking about other Golden Girls episodes that maybe we haven't talked about, where, like, especially Dorothy as an Iron Maiden figure, or just the girls really adhering to their stereotypes? <laughs> I think the episode that for me that strikes me about Dorothy is the president's visit. Yeah. That she is the Iron Maiden and she is, oh, she is so ready to ask him about why he's doing this and why he's doing that and why he, you know, why is he a conservative Republican? And <laughs> they don't really tell him, but he, he arrives at the door and she's like, oh, Mr. President, right? And like all of that feminism, just goes away mm -hmm. and so that one to me was really interesting to see that happen and I said that spoke to this idea of Americanness right and this respect of the position respect of that kind of power and that kind of privilege because um, the whole I mean you could argue well the whole series right I think there's two episodes in that one the whole time she's progressively bringing up all these issues mm -hmm. that are problematic right but the resolution, right? The resolution is, you're the president. Right. Yeah. Right. I just yeah. You. That doesn't fly quite as well now as I think it did then <laughs> um, for no. me, but for anyone. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting because, and even, I can't remember if this particular line is in that episode, but it's like, Dorothy has a Dukakis sticker covering up her Mondale bumper sticker. So there's never any doubt about how she should feel about um, George H.W. Bush, obviously. Um, but they do have that theme, I think especially, and obviously this is reading like way more into like Dorothy's um, upbringing than other people would watching the show. But as the child of immigrants, I think like it comes up um, explicitly a couple times how, um, how important America and like being an American was to Sophia and Sal and therefore like imparted on Dorothy. So it, it totally makes sense that like yeah. she would, you know, like rest on her principles until she's faced with this sort of like figurehead and then just kind of like fall to the the authority or like or I, I think it's I think it's more of like a respect for the position than you know, um just like folding, but it's that's super interesting that you brought that one up. See, the other one connected to that in the immigrant parents is the um, Mario Lopez episode where mm -hmm. he is, um, he's not documented, right? Mm -hmm. And the whole story, I mean, I think it would be different today. I think Dorothy would be like, all right, let's figure out what we can do to, to get you to stay and we'll get you, oh, yeah. we'll get you this lawyer and you can be under the Dreamers Act and, you know, but she was oh, like, no, you go back and you do it the right way you do immigration the right way so again yeah. it was just one of those moments where i thought oh wow they are really adhering to the rule of law <laughs> so close you know like so because yeah. i keep in mind the story right he's on he might be undocumented but he is in no way a progressive character like america is this great big dream <laughs> yeah i mean it's so rah rah america like there's no critique right of Americanness. Well, also the one I was thinking of too, in terms of the sort of the patriotism and that what I was thinking when you were just saying, Lauren, about, um, you know, Dorothy being a child of immigrants and how this would have been imparted upon her when she yeah. was young is the episode where Sophia's getting all the social security checks and Dorothy's well, sort of, oh my, oh yeah, my God, she oh tells God. her, you know, she's like, Ma, you were the one who taught me, you know, how important this is and you're stealing from the American, you know, taxpayers and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah. So it is really interesting that like, again, today, <laughs> this, this would not, this would have much punchier, you know, uh, yeah. storylines that would deal with these issues. Um, see also, you know, Jim Colucci's recent article about how Dorothy Zbornak would handle our president number 45. Um, so I, I think, Lauren, to your point, like, it's pretty amazing, like, that this is very close to the, the progressive show you want, obviously, with a few, a few notes. So. Yeah, there were so many lines from that um, stealing money from the government episode that I just copy and pasted into tweets <laughs> about the president taxes. It was a very good, like, couple days for me on Twitter. <laughs>
there was no critique of American culture. And it was the 80s. My God, of course, I mean, height of Reaganism, right? Like, mm -hmm. of course there's not. Totally. Well, I mean, there's, there's definitely the critique. I think Dorothy critiques elements of how we're dealing with society, right? Like the policies. But right, like, oh, point, this, is, this is about massive unemployment. This isn't about being alone. Um, the reason yes. we were robbed is about massive unemployment, right? So they do, yeah, she exactly. does. And then uh, we mentioned in, in our talk earlier about the divorce, right? Like mm -hmm. she's someone, you know, we can talk about what happens to women during a divorce and maybe in particular during the 80s. Yep. Um, and Dorothy lives that, right? She mm -hmm. lives that. She knows what it's like to, to see her income, you know, drop dramatically and not be able to support herself so much so that she has to move in with another group of women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she, you know, the, the male get, has more money, marries someone younger. I mean, it's just like, yeah, it itself. <laughs> yeah. so you're right. She does, she does speak to some of the problems, but yeah, like a critique of American culture and even like looking at a show like, um, Superstore, which I really didn't like at first, mm. partly because it takes place in St. Louis and I'm from St. Louis and there's nothing uniquely <laughs> St. Louis about it. So I think it's weird. Like they mention like Kirkwood or Soulard and they mention these little parts of town that, you know, anyway, <laughs> but there is a, there is a critique of consumerism and capitalism in there. I don't know how strong it is mm -hmm. I wouldn't go far to say like oh this is this great working class show <laughs> like I, I don't think that's the case um but it is it is interesting that it's in there and even i'm going to go back to ted lasso and i know this is about golden girls but <laughs> there are critiques in that show just little one-liners right mm -hmm. like oh like i like I don't have a fondness for your American militarization. Like you would never hear something <laughs> like that in Golden Girls. Right, right. It's really interesting. But yeah, it is fun to extrapolate like where, what direction they would go into. And, and you know, a lot of the mess that we're currently in stems from that era. So it's really I mean, right? fascinating. I mean, think about that. Like, so what, what if, that's what we should be thinking of. Like what would happen if Golden Girls were set today? Mm -hmm. What would be some of the things? Well, they would go off. <laughs> they would go off on the president. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. I think that we could all, we could bank on all of them voting um, correctly in 2020. So that's, <laughs> right. as, that's as, as well as we in 2020 do. or 2016. What about Rose? Do you think Rose would have voted for a woman? I think, I think Rose definitely would have like gone through, you know, like the, what was Charlie do, right? Like what was the, what was, what was the way like the party line worked? It was definitely a, conservative small you know small town but i honestly think rose also does have she has this like you know independent streak she it's part of her competitive streak but i do think that she can think for herself in this naive way of just being like she would add up some of the things that aren't like she wouldn't maybe talk about policy but like some really basic things that we actually look at him being like <laughs> oh, could you vote for this would yeah. i think she would get there yeah she would have written in mitt romney <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I think, I think they all would have. No, he's you know, mean to animals. Like, he's mean to animals. She absolutely yeah. would not. Right, that one time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She would have found that at the top of the news story. So. I like thinking about who they'd vote for. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Hi, everybody. It's Lauren. I know this is a surprise jump in, but just a quick PSA to please make sure that your registration is current. Um, it's especially important, of course, if your state's deadline hasn't passed yet. And if you are registered to vote, please make a plan to vote. Ideally, early in person if you can, but of course we do have the option of mail-in ballots, which are totally legitimate and not fraudulent. Um, thank you so much. This is such a critical election. And now we'll get back to the fun stuff. The... Um it's really fascinating to think about the critiques of the Golden Girls being of that era and looking back now, yeah. but also the reason it does resonate and has resonated even with new younger people, like, I mean, like people younger than, than us, like people who weren't born when it came on the air, weren't born when it went off the air, for God's sakes, you know, <laughs> yes. syndication, you know, some, some of them know the lines like better than Lauren and I, and I'm shocked. Oh, that. that can't so, be well, true. <laughs> youths are coming for us. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, but it's lovely and it's, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, uh, people are constantly asking the question, why does this resonate? And I think it's because of 
the recombinant nature of the characters gives yes. that baseline of good morals and progressive ideals like these you know golden girls is constantly cited they talked about marriage equality before it was even on the lips of people making laws and you know i mean just constantly talking about all of the issues of the day that like you said we're still dealing with we're still dealing yeah. with women not being trusted we're still dealing with people not accepting gay people we're still dealing you know with vulnerability of women or asshole ex-husbands or whatever is going on shitty policies and and some even worse than now than the critique was so i think it's really interesting where it's like there's so many things they get wrong with our lens now but also yeah. they helped us become who we are now Absolutely. Uh, which is what I think the, the youths <laughs> are just, yes. you know, people discovering the Golden Girls now realize about it. Well, I'm telling you, when I talk about, and it's been a long time, but when I've talked about my dissertation, students are most excited about the Golden Girls. Like, <laughs> they most connect it with the Golden Girls. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good. And, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Sex and the City. In the first season, I think I loved, and then later it just became this kind of consumption porn. And I was like, yeah, I, I can't, like, I can't do it anymore. So I've, I really fell out of love with it. I don't get that with the Golden Girls, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's just good. Mm -hmm. It's good. And it does keep pushing the envelope as best as it could, given its state of affairs on NBC in the 1980s. Uh, it's got, you know, older women on television talking about important issues that are still relevant today that we haven't solved. That, that's what's really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. When Tom Brokaw retired, he said, one of, he did like a history, whatever, reading a history or something like that. He said, I really thought racism would be solved in my lifetime. Hmm. And he's like, wow. you know, now, no. Like, like he really did like in, and it's just so unfortunate. Like we're still mm -hmm. fighting these same battles. Mm -hmm. But hopefully we're opening up a little bit of a wider, you know, viewpoint for a lot more people <laughs> I, I think television we are. shows. I think we are. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I do. I think television is a place, what were we talking about in class today, you know, where there's a struggle for ideological meaning, right? Like, mm. it's, that is a, a great place for that. Like, you see that. You see that happening all the time. There is a constant struggle for ideological meaning. And so, you know, you have... Um, fans like different fan bases who watch and love um, Golden Girls in particular gay men love this show yet I think in some spaces it could be seen as you know with you know what's her name Blanche right with Blanche saying you know she was so upset about her brother mm -hmm. right like you can see you can say like so I always kind of wondered like why were gay men so connected to the show but I think you know the important progressive um, issues are there that we want to push for marriage equality. Yeah. I mean, she eventually comes on board, but it's still, it, if we saw that today, I don't think we'd like Blanche as much. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that with her too. Like, I definitely think there's a lot of, um, well, you think she voted for. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, like, there's a lot of like, like um, she calls back, she really glorifies like essentially antebellum and like, you yeah. know, like yes. civil war era time. So it's, yeah. um, I definitely think that's a blind spot, but it's interesting because I also think this is completely anecdotal and not based on anything besides um, the gay men that I'm friends with in my life. But I think that they all also really love Blanche and like idolize her in a way that they not, you know, not that they don't idolize the whole show, but I do feel like in a couple circles that I'm thinking of, Blanche is like the out and out favorite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's, she's also like in, again, would be different today, I think, but in that episode, particularly where she's unaccepting of Clayton at first, yes. one, it's done with a flip side of humor. It's very funny in the way she's just completely dumb about <laughs> what being a gay man means or what being gay means in general, but also, I think that's such a recognizable person in your life, but also a recognizable person that you hope everybody becomes, right? Somebody whose mind can be oh, changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's like, she, she embodies everything else that's just like such a fun person. And you're like, Blanche, you're so loving. And like, they get her there eventually by talking about like, 
you know, Clayton's like, if you actually love me, you love me for me, really. Like, that's the, essentially the gist. And of course she realizes, you know, how stupid she's being, even if it's hard to get there at first. Yeah. 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 And, so I, and Clayton provides for her, like, a solace from the rest of her family, which, like, yes. Blanche is often mm-hmm. represented, represents, I think, people whose chosen family is um, their sort of, like, main group or, like, main source of love. And I think that a lot of, um, you know, LGBTQ people identify with that in terms of just like, you know, like really having to build a family and sometimes being, you know, maybe valuing that slightly more than your birth family and having people who don't really get that, you know, I, so I think she, I, I love Blanche and I think she represents a lot of really, really um, underrepresented and, and uh, you know, like things that are not talked about at all, even now on TV. So um, I think it, it does make sense, but it's interesting that she's really the character that struggles with um, one of her relatives being gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, well, I know I talked about heteronormativity in, in my um, dissertation, but now thinking about Rose and is it um, Dorothy's friend? Jean. Friend. Jean. Yeah. Jean. Yes, absolutely. So Jean and Jean loves Rose and Blanche gets so mad. <laughs> he doesn't love her. He's furious. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> That's one of my favorite episodes of all time, honestly. That's a good one. It is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> oh and again, it's done, you know, it's, it's talking about these really tough issues, but again, it's a sitcom, right? I mean, to your earlier, you know, our many, many points earlier of, NBC and it's a primetime audience so their demographic is essentially America and you know American adults like it's so not what it's like now like you said it's not what it's like on Fox in the 90s and it's not what it's like an HBO anytime because right. they can do whatever the hell they want yes but it's uh so they, they just mix it with this perfect blend of humor with the perfect blend of seriousness and these perfect rearranging of archetypes that we recognize, but really like pushing the envelope in all of those areas, which is, I mean, that's one of the many reasons why I think we're, we we have a freaking podcast about this TV show. (laughs) Yeah. And that people are connected to it. And I think you're absolutely correct that it's the resonance comes from the longevity of these archetypes, that they are such a big, important part of our humanity in a way, right? Like we've been telling these stories forever. And this is just one version of these stories about who these archetypes, who these archetypes are for women. And you can be one in one sense and another in another. And you want to, yeah. What did Laszlo say? (laughs) It is all of you. (laughs) You have his accent so perfect. Exactly. That wasn't an audio clip, folks. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Available on Cameo, five ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh my gosh! Well, Debbie, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for writing this paper and for discussing it with us. What a great time! Thank you so much for making me talk about this stuff again. Like, it's <laughs> exciting. I'm like, oh, someone is really interested in my dissertation. Like, how exciting is that? You don't even know how exciting that is. <laughs> I love it. I loved your line earlier where you're like, the dissertation committee didn't even read it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to get more eyeballs on Debbie's paper, visit enoughwicker.com slash blog to read our post about the paper and this episode. And remember to vote like Dorothy's Bornak would vote. Hell yes. Take care, everyone.